On today's podcast, we have Mike Ballard. Mike is a serial entrepreneur. He's been a business coach, investor, um, but most importantly, what we talk about today is his real estate career. He's been in real estate for the last 25 to 30 years. He's very active in his community. He sits on the board for a couple different uh, companies in Vegas, and he does ground up developments. They do rehab deals. They do partnership deals. What that means, if you found a, a property, you could just give it to them and figure out some type of percentage split on that. Um, they are willing to pay monthly, which a lot of the other guests that we've had on the show don't do that. It's more of a quarterly or an annual approach. So he's just a total stud. I look up to Mike and he's been so successful. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Mike, thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thank you, Brandon. Really excited to learn from you. You have super impressive resume and you've done so much. So excited just to pick your brain. Glad to be here. My wife sometimes worries about me because I switch jobs all the time. I have, though I think that's one of my challenges is I have no fear of starting something new. Yeah, that's a good thing. How did you get into real estate? Because I, I looked up your resume and you, you have done different things. So that's what I was curious, like what got you into real estate? Oh, um, in Vegas, you're either in gaming or gambling and or real estate. And so, uh, when I graduated, I worked for Xerox for a couple of years, and then I went to work for a, one of the bigger accounting firms as a consultant, and a big part of their practice was real estate. So that's when I first got introduced to a lot of real estate deals and what developers are doing. And I worked around the industry for probably 25 years, and I kind of kicked myself, and I've told my kids I wish I'd have started earlier. investing in real estate yeah. earlier. You know, I'd, I bought with some partners of my dad some land, you know, when I was in my 20s, and that turned out really well. And was then that I did in Vegas, or where yeah, was that at? Mostly cool. everything we've done is in Vegas to start yeah. with. Okay. So it was one of the big four? No, it was the first one was Laventhal and Horwath, was, and again, I'm a lot older than you are, but it was number nine out of the big eight. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, but they were number one in hospitality and number two in real estate in the country. And Vegas was, they were the second biggest firm in Vegas. Um, and they just did a lot of real estate and hospitality work. So you did that for a while, consulting. Right. And, and then you went into data centers, is that? Well, uh, I did not go straight in. I did two different accounting firms. I went from them to RSM McGladry, which is another accounting firm, which is probably number six out of the big four. Okay. And then uh, I was doing really well. And decided to go out on my own, and I created a marketing company, uh, mostly working with uh, professional services firms like accounting firms, law firms, engineers, all targeting real estate and helping them grow their businesses. And then we started picking up more and more real estate companies. And after about four years, we had most of the major real estate developers in Las Vegas. I worked for the Thomas and Mack families, the Mulaski families, uh, C.B. Richard Ellis, you Pacific Realty that had a great piece downtown. We worked for the Greenspun family and the green the marketing of Green Valley Ranch and uh, Seven Hills. Yeah. So <clears throat> we became the 16th biggest PR firm in America to the real estate industry. Wow. And we did work here in Utah on uh, the old Five Points Mall uh, that became, I think, Renaissance Town Center. And Bountiful, uh, I was involved with the launch of uh, Sun River St. George. Um, 
and we worked on different projects all over the country. So then from the PR firm, that's when you... Went to the data center. Okay. Actually, well, <clears throat> I went to another technology company. Okay. Uh, we had... The PR firm had a real estate group that was quite big, but we also uh, had a technology group, a healthcare group, uh, professional services group, a financial services group. Fairly, We're the largest firm in Nevada, and um, I didn't want to do gaming. My mother was a compulsive gambler, didn't want to be around it, so I tried to do all the things that could help diversify Vegas. And uh, we had a technology client that was called Systems Research and Development, and they caught bad guys in the casinos. Mm. And it was fascinating. The, sure the, the founder was a 20-year-old company that had never really broken a couple million in sales and was doing less than a million in sales. But they had big customers. They had station casinos, and they'd do custom programming jobs. And I came in. They were my client. But then I, he put me on his board, his advisory board, and then he put me on his board. And uh, we morphed the company from a custom programming company to a package software company. And we sold, uh, this was kind of before there was business intelligence. This was a middleware that kind of cleansed the data. And we were primarily serving the hotel industry on their marketing, you know, aggregating all the data of all their customers and all the bad guys. Yeah. And uh, we were really good at catching bad guys, keeping them out of casinos. Because if the wrong bad guy ends up in the casino, a gaming operator could lose his license. And so, is that people counting cards? Like, what is that? That was part That's of it. Interesting. There was a huge database of anytime somebody got thrown out, it would it went in paper. People would take notes. He played this game. He's this tall. He associated with these no people. Pictures? And they had pictures, oh, they did, yeah. but none of it was digitized. This was in the oh, late nineties, wow. and so you had to kind so of memorize that. This this company, you know, and typically once they threw somebody out, uh, there was this company that became a client of ours that would then fax it to all the other surveillance rooms. This this guy we just threw out of our place, be on the lookout because he's coming to your place. And they do that so they could benefit from the data. Sure. You know, they just yeah. scratch each other's back. We became incredibly good at doing that incredibly quickly. We digitized everything, made it so you could search uh, extremely fast. And our founder gave a speech to the intelligence community in Washington, D.C., uh, where he talked about how the gaming protects the game without impinging on customer service. And some people in the CIA just wigged out. They're like, we've been trying to develop something like this when we talked about technically how we did it for years. And mm -hmm. so the CIA has a venture capital firm, which we didn't know at the time, in QTEL. And they invested in us in two different rounds. What? And the when they CIA. put the CIA invested in our little software company. That is crazy. And, and we grew this company by 700% over the next three years. And uh, we ended up selling it to IBM, made some really good money. And then I ended up. So going, you were a founder of that company? <clears throat> no, no. It was or, a 20 year old company oh, okay, okay. that was custom programming. And we started morphing it into package software that we could sell to people that did surveillance. Okay. And wow, I'm oversimplifying really cool. it. Yeah. And but um, and it became part. It was it became IBM's entity analytics uh, resolution group. Wow. And uh, the founder ends up becoming an IBM fellow, and mm. you know he dropped out of high school, and ends up being an IBM fellow, traveling all over the world teaching people how to 
how to go through huge databases to find certain things. And it was fascinating. That's tech for you, though. That's tech. And then um, I had developed one of my real estate clients uh, was the Thomas and Mack families, and they started letting me help them make decisions on investing outside of banking and real estate, which was their expertise. And uh, so we did some investments together. And then this opportunity came with this small little data center company. They had probably uh, 16,000 square feet of data center and two buildings in a dive part of Vegas. And uh, the gentleman asked me to come in. I helped rewrite his business plan. And I introduced him to multiple investors in Vegas about potential investment. And the Thomas and Mack families basically said we're in. And so we created that data center company, and that was a combination of real estate and technology and uh, went really well. Um, I was with that company for the first three years. Uh, The founder and I had some differences of opinion after that, but um, I left and started doing some technology consulting, started a couple other businesses, and then gravitated to real estate. What I love about that story that's so cool, Mike, is – I felt this pressure, and I often hear from a lot of people that work for us, when you're in your your 20s, you're trying to figure out what do you want to do. And the older I've got, the more I've realized that people put too much pressure on themselves when they're young because it's okay to go from one thing to another to another, like you did. That's a cool story because Mm -hmm. you did marketing for a little bit. You with PR. You did consulting. You worked with one of the big accounting firms. Then you got into data centers, then you got into real estate. And I'm sure a lot of that experience helped you in real estate, mm-hmm. but they're all, they can all be great. They can. And I just think, I remember, I wish I could go talk to my younger self. Like I'm constantly wondering, what do I, what am I going to do? What should I do? And you haven't done anything. So how do you know? Right. So hard exactly. to figure it out. Right. That, that's the thing. You know, I've, I've told my kids as they, when they started college, I said, it's okay for you to change majors. Yeah. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Totally. You have no idea what that's like. So my oldest daughter went to BYU and was going to major in chemical engineering. She was a math nerd, uh, awesome. And she takes her first class somewhat related to chemical engineering. And she says, I hate this. I don't want to do that at all. Yeah. Do you mind if I change? And I said, yeah, look at the classes that you've liked and what majors, you know, do those classes point you to? Yeah. And she ended up in economics with a minor in math and a minor in global business. And wow. she's done great. It's crazy. The last uh, industry I was in before this industry was dental. Mm-hmm. So we had a tech company in dental. And I can't tell you how many dentists I met with in those four years that hated doing dental. Oh, you're not. They got in because they thought it was a I've safe job. I've heard that. I've heard that. Good money, whatever. But it has, it's, it's always like number one or number two for highest suicide rates. I've Which heard is crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and all the time they'd be like, man, I wish I would have started a tech company or right. I'm doing what you're doing, whatever. And I just always thought that was so fascinating because right. a lot of people in college are like, I want to be a dentist and they covet that. But then I saw the other side of the fence. And so it yeah. goes back to the quote you said, which I love this quote, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay. I think there should be more of an emphasis on just go find something and, and really just magnify it just work hard get really good at it and then that's where at least i look back at my life that's where a lot of doors of opportunity came for me is no matter what i was doing if i just worked hard 
and try to do my best at it, opportunities came. Then you can, your path will kind of take you where you need to go, I feel like. I I think, too, if you're passionate about something, you're willing to spend more than what people are willing to, more time on it than what people want to pay you for. Totally. But if you spend more time on it than what people are willing to pay for, you end up learning and being better than the, the other peers that only want to work for as long as they're being paid for it. And the more you invest in that, a couple other things I, I strongly believe and I try to tell all the young people that are, my friends bring by, my kids bring by their friends, and is dabble in lots of things. It's okay those first eight or ten years after your mission or college or whatever, yeah. uh, try different things. It's all about educating your mind, filling up your well from which you'll pull for the rest of your life. For sure. And so, and it's okay to fail because if you don't fail, you're not trying. And some of the greatest learning experiences come as part of trying to succeed when you're failing I totally and agree. understanding what you love and don't love about that process that brought you down. Totally. I look back, there's no question I've learned way more from my failures than yeah. when I've won. Cause you examine it. It's, it's, uh, in psychology, Failure is a lot more painful than when you win, right? And so right. there's there's so much truth to that, and that's how you have to figure out what you want. Um, so then you got into real estate, and you're just, man, you're just this huge, like you've had so much success in real estate. You've done things all over the country. And so I want to talk about what types of projects you guys do. Is it always ground-up developments? No. Okay. <clears throat> so – I, I've been around the real estate industry for 30 years. I was on the founding board of UNLV for their Institute of Real Estate Studies. Um, and, but I didn't start really investing in earnest until a little over three years ago. Um, and in those three years, we started out just buying and doing something called syndicating. Yeah. And uh, we went – one of my buddies, he was selling his solar business in Vegas and looking for something else to do. And I said, and I had started uh, about nine years ago now, we started an accounting firm for apartment owners. I'd been consulting with a, a management company, one of the biggest management companies in Nevada. Um, and they had an accounting group that was doing some of these outside services to do accounting. And the more I uh, spent time with these folks, I said, you know, I think your accounting group, if it were its own entity, can grow bigger than your management company. Mm. And they said, really? Tell us more. And I told them more and I wrote some stuff up and they said, we like it. We're going to give you some equity in the company. We're creating a new entity. You'll be one of the managing members or the board members of this group. Go make it happen. And so that was nine years ago and we created a cent multifamily accounting. And so we started doing back office accounting for owners of apartments all over the country. Mm. And we probably had four or 5,000 units at the time. And I started, we created a name, a website, a presence, going to conferences, speaking at seminars and conferences on how to start your own management company if you already own properties. Yeah. And we'll do the back office accounting and make yeah. it easy. You know, we're the easy button. And so I did that for about three or four years. And I started, as I got to know my clients better, I'm like, 
you're making great money owning these apartments. Yeah, you're seeing your books. And this one guy in particular would come with me as a panelist at these various conferences and talk about his experience. And uh, he was in Georgia. And in four years, he got up to 2,200 units. Wow. And I'm like, how did you do that? And he's making amazing money. And I'm like, I got to do that someday. And, and I'd, Every you know, we'd go out to these dinners all over the country as, yeah. at these conferences. He'd drink a little more than, you know, he probably should, and tell me a couple ideas. Tell me some <laughs> stuff he wouldn't tell me during the day, yeah. <laughs> you know, and how he did certain things. And it was, and it was just fascinating to hear. Mm. You know, and I've told him this whole story now. He's heard me tell the story, yeah. and he laughs. He said, you know, but I say, Steve, you've been a great influence on me. And I started building this business plan in my mind on how I'm going to start buying apartments. And then three years ago, this month in July of 2019, we bought our first property, which was 36 units. Where at? Uh, Downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Cool. Ghetto district. The property was the same age as I was. It was built when I was born. And uh, and at the time, I was probably 58 years old. And uh, I'm 61 now. And... It was just, uh, you know, there were shootings in the neighborhood. There was drug deals. Wow. There was all kinds of crummy stuff going on. and uh, But it looked right that we could, it, it was something that we felt we could afford. And uh, it was a $2.8 million purchase. Okay. And we were going to get a Freddie Mac loan. And, and for us to do some improvements and to pay the closing costs and pay us an acquisition fee, we needed to raise $700,000. And we read the books on syndication, and syndication is where you go and you find other people to invest with you, and you get some sweat equity for putting the whole deal together. Yeah. And so we put everything together, laid out our investor summary or prospectus and uh, we got all of our emails together of all the people that we knew that we thought were accredited investors and uh, we mailed 1100 emails out saying here's a package here's some information you'll get a 18% return if you invest we'll pay you a basic dividend to start with of 8% as we refinance it we'll give you some money back and then as cash flows continue to increase you'll get an 18% return over the life, over a five-year life of the investment. And we did that emailing to 1,100 people, and we got an amazing response, 20% response. Wow. But the response was, take me off your list. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, I was going to say 20%. Yeah, There's but it was no like, way. take me off your list. It was yeah. the first time we'd done this kind of a mailing to just our general contacts mm-hmm. that we thought were wealthier. And so a bunch of people told so we're sitting there and we start dialing for dollars. And after about three weeks, we raised 150 grand of the 700 grand we had to raise. We're like, oh, this is. But this one 22 year old young man who was super sharp, he had dropped out of college to do real estate full time, living in Manhattan, says, Hey, Mike, how are you doing on your deal? I'm just getting in the business too. Um, and I said, We've only raised 150 out of the 700 we're trying to raise. And he said, if I can raise the other 550, will you give me 33% of the sweat equity? And we said, sure. 
because we thought our money's non-refundable. We're not even close to halfway there uh, of the money we need to buy the property. And so basically, he got his dad, his grandpa, his dad's business partner, and another person, and they raised five hundred and fifty grand in five days. Mm. And that's how we bought our first property. So fast forward three years, how's that property done? Doing great. It's actually under contract to sell. We weren't nice. planning on selling it for two more years. Okay. But we told our investors in our pro forma, we expect we bought it for seventy eight thousand a door. Okay. Thirty six doors. Okay. Thirty six doors, seventy eight thousand a door. Uh we have it under contract to sell, I believe, for hundred and thirty thousand a door. Wow. And we told our investors our goal would be to sell it in five years for 112000 Wow. So we got this offer from somebody we'd already sold another property to. Our second property that we ever bought, we had one of our investors wanted to get out. So we sold one property before that. So our investors on this particular property are probably going to get, for every dollar they put in, they're going to get $2.10 out. Not too shabby in three not years. Too, not too shabby. And we've been paying them. You know, we were paying them monthly a pref, hmm. you know, basically a monthly check of, I think that one was a 7% preferred in, preferred rate, annual rate that we'd pay monthly. And so they were getting checks every month, and now they're going to get, uh, the guy's extended. The market's changed a little bit since he first put it under contract. Sure. But he's got 300000 non-refundable in his deposits to buy the property because he's extended. And if he doesn't go through... Well, we got three hundred thousand. We raised seven hundred grand. This is like forty-two percent. Wow! That if he doesn't go through, we just divvy it out to the investors. That's crazy. And so, so that how, property did really well. How is the fund structure? How's it set up? Is it, you know, is there a minimum investment? Check size. You no, know, it depends on the deals, okay. and it's not a fund. We do property by property. So it's deal by deal. And um, what's interesting, I got to tell you. Two more quick stories. So we bought that one in that neighborhood. Then we bought another in that neighborhood and another in that neighborhood. By the time we got to the fifth one on that general area, you know, in the early days, like I said, we mailed 1100 and and got not even everything that we needed, anywhere near the money we needed. On the last one, we just unveiled, emailed the 54 people that invested in the four other deals. And we had 50% more money than we needed. Mm. In 36 hours. Wow. 36 hours. Basically, people said, I'm in, I'm in, you know. And if you – one of the keys that I think to having that kind of success for us was communicate to the investors regularly. We send uh, every other month at least, sometimes monthly, an email to the newsletters that say rents were this compared to our budget. You know, NOI was this compared to our budget. And here's the things we're doing. We evicted this many people. We, we've got these new leases. Here's how rents have changed every month. So imagine three years ago when we first started, nine months after we started, COVID hits. And there's some bad news that we had to say, right? The state and the county put on this eviction moratorium. So some people say, hey, this is my opportunity not to pay rent. Yeah. And so... We had those challenges, and we communicated the bad news to the, you know, we put the bad news in there. Luckily, you know, we got some funds uh, from the federal government to help us out a little bit, and rents started going through the roof as 
everywhere. They've gone up everywhere. Sure. And so the property was able to make it through that tough time. All the properties were um, and actually did quite well. Once we were able to start evicting people that didn't pay and once people realized they got to pay now, you know, we uh, all the properties have done really well. I want to ask you about red states versus blue states because just about anybody I know that's in multifamily wants a red state because it protects the landlord more. Blue states protect the tenant more. What's your thought on that? You know, uh, and as a result, there's more competition in the red states to For buy sure. properties. So there, that drives up some properties. Yep. There are opportunities everywhere. Um, but what's your thought on holding properties in blue states? Does that scare you? Um, I'm trying to think what blue states we're in, and I don't think we're in any. So yeah, okay. I'm not that scared. Cause but but and it, it shifted with COVID, right? right? I don't. I didn't at least. I can't remember a divide like that. But post COVID, people are like, "There's no way I want to own a multifamily unit in a blue state." Yeah, but you know what? We, I know several people that own properties in California, and they're doing just fine. I know people that are owning properties in Seattle. They're doing just fine. Um, part of it is, you know, the the rent increases because the the challenge that we have everywhere is governments have put certain burdens to build new properties everywhere and as a result we're way behind in building housing yeah the demands the there demand everywhere is absolutely there i think the concern is more am i going to own this and are are all my tenants going to have permission not to pay me for a while that's the right. concern Right. The man's everywhere. I mean, that's yeah. that's all there. Yeah. So we we focused on just a few states. We're trying now to stick more in the states we're in. But we're yeah. doing four new developments in L.A. Okay. Um, in Koreatown, Hollywood, and L.A. Okay. And, uh, you know, there's demand. I mean, right across from one of our developments in Hollywood, uh, Mill Creek built a uh, – a luxury project where a studio, 595 square foot studio, rents for 3600 a month. Wow. Right? And so one of the things we're doing is we're right across the street. We bought an old discount tire, okay. uh, remediated the soil, you know, and now we're building a seven-story structure with a couple uh, wow. levels of uh, underground parking. And we're doing something called co-living, which is student housing for yuppies. And so we're they're renting a 595 square foot unit for 3600. We're creating these 240. We're building a lot of four bedroom, four bath uh, units where you rent a we, you rent a bedroom like you do in student housing. It's your own bath, but it's 250 square feet for 2400 a month. Mm. So you can pay 3600 a month for more square feet. But if you just want to live in the neighborhood in Hollywood, yeah. We got. We think we've got a, a heavy market. We'll be able to nice. lease in about three months there. You were talking to me about some of these projects you'll refi and then roll that money into another project. So how would yeah. that impact you as an investor? So this is something that is very appealing to a lot of our investors. Uh, we joke that invest into and get the third for free because uh, typically we buy a property that is in crummy shape. And oftentimes we'll tell the broker, find something with holes in the roof, holes in the yeah, walls. Yeah, you want the opportunity. We want the, right. So we've been buying some of these in like inner city Vegas that are uh, 
you know, where rents are $592 a month because they're dives. The plumbing doesn't work. The sink wobbles. There's a hole in the roof. I mean, it's just amazing how bad these are. On mm. some of them, there's a plywood over the window, My which gosh. is against code, but he was doing it. So we bought this property like that. And because we had four other properties in the neighborhood, we knew what we could get for rents if we really did it nice. So we, number one, we look, you know, in those neighborhoods, there's a bunch of guy, men and women that are driving, you know, 30-year-old Buicks and Fords, you know, that type of thing. And then there's one guy driving the Mercedes. We try to kick the one guy driving the Mercedes out because he's the drug dealer, mm. right? And so we kick that guy out. We do all the repairs. We put... uh granite countertops, nice floors, fix all the holes, you know, throw out the couple people that are making the neighborhood bad. And pretty soon, a year later, most of the residents are paying 900 a month instead of 600 a month. And so we bought the property, this one I'm thinking of, we bought it for $2 million. It appraised for like $3.2 million a year later. Wow. So we refinance it at 70 or 80% loan to cost. We get typically 40 to 70% of the money that we originally invested in the project back out of the loan proceeds. And we used uh, temporary debt or bridge debt that was, let's say, at 7 or 9%. Uh, now we have new debt that's at 3 or 4%. And so the cash flow is the same or better, but we just gave our investors back 40 to 70% of their money tax-free because it's like you don't pay taxes when you refinance your house on the money the bank gives you. This is borrowed proceeds. Mm. And so you take, you do two of those, now you got enough money to put it and to invest in the third deal. Mm. That is fascinating. That's a game changer too. It is. It is. And the great thing about it is now you've got three that are generating cash flow. And you go a little while, and now this one refinances, and the cash flow from these pay for you to invest with what I call house money. You don't have to put any yeah. of new money. Or if you choose to, you know, so we've got we've got some dentists and doctors that they're just like, you know, they invest with us every four months, every time we bring up a new deal. Yeah, they're letting it compound, even and it though you're not, and it's you're amazing. not compounding it. You, it is, but it's it's not directly compounding. Right. It's just rolling it into another project that increases in value. You take that, roll it into another. Yeah. So, some of the big families that I've dealt with over the years in Vegas, the the pioneer families of Vegas, they said, you know, as long as you're getting 12% on your money, you know, if you try to get a lot more than that, you're, you may lose it. But if you just hit singles and doubles like that, you'll double your money every five or six every years. Five years. Yeah. It's a little over five you know? years. Yeah. And it's magical. Yeah. And it's just, so a lot of our developments, we, we try not to do a deal unless it has at least a 15% internal rate of return, mm -hmm. which includes the monthly checks the refinance proceeds, and then when we ultimately sell it. And so uh, you, our investors are typically getting 15 to 20% returns annually for every property they invest in. Yeah. So if we let's just go through a scenario. So if somebody put in 100K into a project and in two to three years you refied, mm -hmm. they have their whatever relativity they have of the 100K to the purchase price, they still have that equity mm -hmm. in that property. And then if you refi, they would typically get back 70%. 70%. Right. So, 70K. so let me drop, let me yeah. walk you through this. So they invest a hundred grand in one of these properties. And let's say we're paying a 7% preferred return. So 
they start getting 45 days after they make their investment, they get their first monthly check, which is $7,000 divided by 12. If it's not a ground up development. If it's not a ground up yeah. development. They're getting 7000 divided by 12. So about 600 and some odd dollars a month. That's so cool. Okay? So they're getting $600 a month. Yeah. And we go a year and a half and then we refinance it. Now they've been getting that 7000 a year. So they've gotten 10500 in 18 months. Now we give them another 70000 back if we got 70% loan to cost or 50000 if it's 50%. So they get 50% of their money back tax-free because it's debt proceeds. So now they've gotten $60,000 on 18 months' time in the investment. And they still and then have they, 100K then, in there. Now uh, they're still getting their return, and then we sell it in year four or five. They get their 100000 back, plus they've been getting that 7000 a year divided by 12 every month. Yeah. Plus the net profit that they split with us, the sponsors, yeah. where typically it's 50-50 at that point. And so we take 50% of the profit and they take 50% of the profit. That's amazing. And then they have the 70K to go invest in another project yeah. as well. So, yeah, and having it be tax-free is, is huge. So also... And the, well, one other ahead. thing about the taxes. Yeah. Um, if you can... If you've done one or two of these deals, or let's say you have one or two real estate deals on your own, where... And let's say you're married. So you have a day job... And, and maybe your wife is doesn't have a day job or is raising kids or whatever, she can be designated as a real estate professional. And again, you need to talk to your own tax guy to confirm this, but typically the spouse can be considered she's the asset manager of the family's real estate portfolio. And as a result, you know, most of the time when you get your depreciation benefit for owning real estate, it if you're not primarily a real estate investor, you can only deduct those uh, claim those deductions against your passive income. But if one of the two of you is an active real estate investor, then that goes against his W-2 taxes that sure. came out. Yeah. And that's where there's a huge benefit. Totally. Too. So it's tax deductible. And we always do something called a cost segregation study so we can accelerate depreciation mm. in the first year for all the fixed, the non-20-year deductible items. That's huge. You were telling me about a couple that are teachers, and I want to bring this up because I think it's one thing that's unique to you guys is that you'll partner on deals too. Yeah. So tell me that story again with the couple. Yeah. So, and and we've done this now with four different groups. Okay. So, but theirs is somewhat indicative. We met these folks at a real estate conference early in our, early in our starting of our company, and they wanted to buy properties and we wanted to buy properties and we ended up finding one first. And she said, I'd like to invest in that, but would you give me a sliver of the sweat equity so I can tell a lender someday down the road that I'm a principal in the deal. I'm one of the sponsors. And so she was willing to contribute X amount of dollars. She got somebody else to contribute. You know, it was less than a 10th of everything we were raising. And we were willing to give her the credit for all the money they put, just like all the other investors, but gave her, Two and a half percent of the sweat equity in the deal, her and her husband. Yeah. And um, so then we did, had another deal, and she said, can we do the same thing? And we said, sure. So she got another sliver of the sweat equity in addition to the, re the return she'd get for her uh, investment. And then she did a third. And she's – and I say she. Her and her husband are both active in it. 
she's just the one that I happen to communicate with a little bit more. Okay. And uh, so they they finally found their own deal. They're based in Minnesota. They found a deal in Des Moines, Iowa. We looked at the deal and we like we like this. It was seventy five thousand a door for forty eight doors. So I think it was three point two million dollars, and uh, they needed to raise one point two million. And she said, you know what? This is bigger than what, you know, we put her in touch with the lenders that we thought would give them a better rate, which they were able to do that. And then they didn't have the net worth to be able to guarantee a loan of that size. So then we agreed to guarantee the loan for them. And then they were trying to raise money using mostly social media, which can be effective, but it wasn't doing that well in this particular case. And so they came to us. Their money had gone non-refundable in this purchase of this. Um, they said, hey, we need some help raising money because we got three weeks to go. And um, so basically we activated our network. We did an email to our existing investors saying, here, we've got a new opportunity. It's this much. If you'd like to raise, here's the preferred return. You know, here's the amount you'd get in your check every month. And here's the potential return. And do you want to invest? And Basically, in four days, we were able to raise the majority of the money that was needed and made her worries go away. She, you know, her she's and her a husband. In the deal. She's a partner in the deal. Yeah. In that particular deal, her and her husband, I think, have 55% of the deal. We have 40% of the deal, and somebody else got 5% of the deal. So that's one of the things that has surprised me about the multifamily industry is it's really not that competitive. There's a lot of people helping each other. And so that's what we were willing to do with them. And we had people willing to do that for us. In fact, our most profitable deal, somebody did that for us. Really? It was a partnership. Yeah. Yeah, we had a deal. Uh, we found a deal in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, 258 units, right near a military base, Fort Campbell. And uh, it was not on the market. I knew a property manager there uh, through my accounting business. And... Uh, she found this deal for us. We approached the owner, said, would you be willing to sell this? And he said, not right now. I've got this construction company. We have, I'm employing a lot of my family doing work on this project. And yeah. we're not going to be ready for about six months. And so we came back. We negotiated a deal. The guy was willing to do seller financing. Wow. And so it was a $15.5 million purchase. Wow. He was willing to finance 85% of it. Oh, my gosh. He had no debt on it, and so we bought it. See, the challenge with him and part of why he was willing to finance it and the reason he was knew he couldn't sell it right away was they were horrible at keeping records. Mm-hmm. He, they had family doing the property management, and they did not have records that any so bank he, would look at. He didn't at. have a clear P&L. Right, exactly. It would have been hard to get approved, and so, he, he knew that. And he knew that. So he yeah. said, I'm willing to finance it. Let me tell you the story. Basically, we put professional management in. Uh, we're able to increase rents like we normally do. 15 months later, we go to refinance it. And the lender that we're talking to says, you know what? I think that's worth $22 million. You bought, bought it for, it for 15. 15 Yeah. 22. And uh, wow. when we first bought it too, well, we ended up uh, doing that earlier this year. We refinanced it earlier this year. During that process with the lender, now that we had a year's worth of clean books, 
they it appraised for twenty six million. The lender wouldn't let us go up to there unless we raised the interest rate because by the time we did the rate lock, interest rates had gone up another point and a half. And he said, "I'll I'll gladly lend you more money, but the interest rate's going to go from, I think we got, two point nine percent interest on a ten year fixed." Wow. And uh, so we kept this close again. We bought it probably twenty months ago, and we refinanced it. I think in March. Okay. That's incredible. And and so we gave our investors 70% of their money back. Wow. In and one, less than a year. In 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 or, 17 sorry, months. In 17 yeah, months. Yeah. Wow. That's so before we started this, we were talking offline about just other investments that you've done. And you brought up angel investing. Right. How how has that been? Oh, that is quite a story. So we started um, I'm one of the four co-founders of the Vegas Valley Angels, which was the Angel Investing Club of Las Vegas. And uh, we got pretty prolific. We had 55 members. We were created as a not-for-profit association of investors. People would pay $700 a year to be part of the group. And then it was like Shark Tank. We'd have People come in and pitch. We'd have three yeah. or four people pitch once a month, um, 10 months out of the year, and we'd invest in two or three deals a year. Anybody can invest. We had 55 members at our peak. And, uh, you know, we invested probably uh, $16 million in 24 companies in eight years. Mm. And that was 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And if you remember what happened in 2009 and 10, the market tanked. Yeah. And so uh, almost every deal. We lost money on it. Didn't work, yeah. Didn't work. It was the only ones that really worked were the ones where I was an executive of the company. And not even all those, not even one of those didn't work for me either. So, yeah. I think this is great to talk about actually because I have a lot of friends that have done angel investing and it's it's a pretty common consensus. I don't want to overgeneralize this. But the common thread that I see is that when you're investing in small companies or angel investing, chances are you might not see that money again. It's a higher risk thing. And so my nine pers- out of 10 times, you're not going to see that yeah. money again. So this isn't not investment advice. My personal philosophy for me is that I shouldn't be investing in that until I have really good foundations in other places. Right. And then that's somewhere if, if, I was talking to my younger self and I was brand new to investing. I'd say, don't even think about doing angel investing until you're totally squared away and you're financially free or you have a lot of passive income. Right. But don't start there. That's what I would say to myself. Yeah. So, And I, I would agree with that. If, if, if I were talking to my kids, yeah, you know, and they're, you know, they've got money now, they've, you know, I'd say 50 percent probably should be in equities, you know, in, in the stock market. 40 yeah. to 50% should be in the stock market. You know, 20 to 30% ought to be in real estate. Um, though I don't believe in that anymore, but that's what I probably would say in general. That's that's what I think is a more common answer. And then have cash or bonds or things that where the, your principal is not at risk yeah. would be, you know, 10 or 20%. And then angel investing, investing in tech companies um, should be five or ten. The, the challenge was 
picture, here's the statistics that occurred out of our Vegas Valley Angel Group. We'd have 80 to 100 companies apply to present every month or every year. Out of those, we'd pick typically uh, 24 to 36 to present. So this is the top fourth or third that would make it through our screening. And then they'd present and we'd choose to do due diligence on five out of those hundred. Right. And And those are the good five. Those are the good five. And then we'd invest in three of those five. And out of eight years that we were doing this investing, probably one paid a positive return, two gave us our money back, and the other 21, we lost all the money. It's incredible. And so real estate is so much different. So I mean, much different. especially cash flowing multifamily. Because when the market goes down, people still need to live somewhere. Sure. Right? C.B. Richard Ellis did a study that out of all the real estate classes, multifamily is the most stable that will return the best returns and have the lowest risk of all the other types of real estate investing. Because people got to live somewhere. Yeah. And, and the, the other the other great thing about investing in multifamily is the federal government has created so many special loan programs that the type of debt you can get for housing is so much better than the how the debt you can get on storage or yeah um, office industrial that type of thing. Sure. When you look back, because you've been in real estate, you said for twenty five thirty years, mm-hmm. what's been some of the best advice you've got? That's really helped you. I would say don't, especially early on, don't go for home runs. Go for singles and doubles. You know, just try to get a 10 to 15% return, right? Invest, learn, get other people's reports, get other people's financial statements, see how those go. Um, You know, too many people try to, I've got two partners in one deal. Um, one guy only has does deals with the other guy. The other guy keeps trying to do all these deals on his own, and he never does because he's trying to skin every last uh, profit he can make out of a deal when he's buying the property. And as a result, he's always outbid, and he always says everybody's foolish. And he's been saying that. The other guy says he's been saying that for 12 years. Because he never does a deal because Mm. he said they paid too much. And this guy does two or three deals a year. Mm. And he's, I've watched him grow. You know, he's got two private planes. He's got, you know, he's doing fabulous, you know, and, you know, be willing to take a little less as long as you know you're going to get a good return, Mm. you know, and it's stable. Don't over leverage because. Over leveraging is awesome in a good market because you make so much money because you put so much little money sure. into it. But then as soon as the market goes down a little bit, you lose it. Yeah. And I, you know, in 2008 and nine, that happened to me a couple of times and it was painful and it was hard to explain to my wife, you know, how we lost this money that we shouldn't have lost. Yeah, I totally agree. Is there any books that have made a big difference for you? Even outside of real estate. Yeah. So I'm going to say a couple in real estate and out of real estate. The the one that I would tell, especially young people starting their careers or their investing careers, is Atomic Habits. Um, it's huge. It is about systems more than goals. Um, and it incremental success. I mean, 
it's just a, a fabulous book. Another good one is The Richest Man in Babylon. Classic. Classic, you know, and it it I haven't even touched that book probably in 15 years, but it was so uh, influential in my life totally. that helped me f- fix some things and helped me get to if where If you're I'm listening at. to this and you haven't read it, go read it. It's a, it's a simple small book yeah. but so profound you can you can read it in a weekend yeah and it's and it's light and it's fun and maybe it's, an hour and a half read yeah. you know well, it's, but it's incredible you're a faster reader than I am, <laughs> but yeah and then on the real estate side you know we've been fortunate as we've been trying to package really good deals and because yeah. of my experience with the accounting firms and with uh the marketing we've been able to attract four national writers that have invested in our deals. Hmm. And uh, one is cool. Maintenance Man to Millionaire by Glenn Gonzalez. Okay. One is uh, The Best Ever Book on Syndication by Joe Fairless. He's an investor in one or two of our deals. Uh, and then Rob Beardsley wrote a great book on underwriting that's highly detailed. Uh, and those are just books that I'd, I'd highly recommend that provide a good foundation, especially if you want to get into syndication Number one, I'd love to talk to you because we help yeah. people do syndication. We like to help grow uh, young syndicators. And it's an opportunity for us to find deals that we can put our investors into. Because now I get an investor or two that call me that says, you know, it's been three months. What's the next deal to put money in? And I'm like, ah. you know. Yeah, so if somebody has a deal that they found and they want you guys to basically run the whole thing and they can just come in on it. We'll mm-hmm. do that. And we'll give them sweat equity. Cool. We don't have to run the whole thing, too. We, You know, there's 10 major tasks when doing a syndication. We just pull out a spreadsheet that we've Say got a standard spreadsheet. Say Yeah. You've already done this and this, so yeah. you're going to get, you know, 20 or 30% credit for that. Then we're going to raise this much money. You're going to raise that. We're going to guarantee this loan. We're going to be the key operator because sometimes they want somebody with more than 500 units or more than 1,000 units. And so we'll sign on there. And... uh Who's going to do the asset management? We'll let you do the asset management, and we'll give you this percent for that. That's so cool. I, I don't think we've had a partner on that's been willing to do that. And so for somebody that that works for us here, that's so valuable, right? Because there's probably a lot of a lot of people want to get into multifamily, but it's hard to take down a deal by yourself. Right. And also, sometimes financing is extremely difficult if you're you're younger and you don't have a lot of experience yet. Mm-hmm. So this would allow somebody to go find a deal mm-hmm. and partner up with you guys. Yeah, and then they get access to all of our documents, right? Here's what a purchase and sale agreement, you know. Yeah. Here's what your loan agreement. Don't and sometimes we warn them. Almost every time we do it, there's something in the loan documents that you want to strike out, and they say, "Well, the lender won't do that." And we said, "Yeah, they will," you know. And then we yeah, give them different cool. kinds of documents just, all the just so they could stuff. they could have access to those. So if somebody does want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? CaminoVerdeGroup.com. Okay. That's our website. Camino Verde Group, the path to green. Cool. That's what we like to call it. So. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I learned a ton and so appreciate the time. Thank you, Brendan. We appreciate being here.